You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast. Midweek debrief number 123. And I am the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Thank you, as always, for your time and attention. Well, the last week has been an interesting one after the episode number 122. I lost subscribers and supporters following that episode. So at least some people took me up on my offer to stop following and listening to the podcast if they disagreed with my opinion. But to those of you who have stuck with me, even if you disagree with my opinion, which I hope you end up disagreeing with me at least at some points in my opinion, because they're my own, my own thoughts, and therefore I don't expect you to agree with me completely all of the time. But as I say, I hope that at the very least I spur you to think and stir you up enough that you start to consider your own presuppositions, prejudices, why you think and act the way you do. And if in the course of my monologues and my readings of different texts, you find that my opinion is unbearable, then by all means, why are you torturing yourself by listening to the podcast? So to those who have left, I'm sorry that you feel that way. Uh, To those who have stopped financially supporting the show, I understand that the product that I am putting out there isn't worth your time or your money, and I can appreciate that as well. That being said, as I've always said since the beginning, I strive for transparency and honesty in my thoughts and in my words and in how I express myself. So I'm not going to hold back in order to help myself uh, maintain a steady cash flow, which trust me, it's not, I think I have nine uh, supporters for the show right now financially through Anchor FM. So to you, thank you so very much. Like I said, I lost a couple, but I'm not making enough money to pay the bills off of this podcast. I make enough to probably put a gallon of gas in my car most weeks, but that's not why I do this show. The support is greatly appreciated. It helps, as always, with buying books and resources, keeping my software and my production material up to date, buying new hardware if I need it. But everything that you do to support this podcast, whether it be your DMs, your financial support, your encouragement when we talk, Everything is intended by me anyways, and that's the mission of uh, this podcast, is that everything that I put out there is for my children and for you, and if they or you find value in it, well then, you'll reciprocate in whatever way you can. And I appreciate that. I greatly appreciate that. And if I lose 50 listeners, and I drop below 200 downloads uh, a week, which has happened, that's all right. I understand this is not a popular opinion that I I am expressing. It's not popular to talk about these things nowadays in the current cultural climate of the United States and possibly the world. But that being said, I'm not going to stop expressing my opinion. And I would hope then that if nothing else, you get that from the podcast, that boldness, bravery, courage, it starts with simply speaking your mind and doing it so that others know this is why I do what I do. This is why I just said what I said. I'm thinking this, and so I'm going to put it out there. I'm not saying I'm right. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying this is where I'm at. This is my opinion today. That opinion is subject to change based on life experience, gaining wisdom, learning from others, conversing with others. 
And if you find, again, that that, my opinion, is intolerable, then by all means, stop torturing yourself. But to those of you who have stuck with me, who encourage me, and who share the podcast and support me and talk me up to others and encourage them to listen to the podcast, thank you. As always, thank you. That being said then, uh, sayonara to those who have, who have cut ties with the podcast. <laughs> uh, blessings to you. Otherwise, I thought since it's come up a lot in the last month or two, but specifically in the last week, we talk about standards and values. And in my experience, I don't know about yours, but in my experience, especially the last two and a half years, something, I don't know what happened in 2020, but something happened and it just changed people. People were unmasked. People were exposed. Their true character came out. I don't know what it was, but there was something that happened in 2020 that just seems to have shaken everyone loose. But whatever that thing is or was, what I've noted then is that I hold myself to a very high standard. One, because I'm a recovering addict. And as a recovering addict, I have to be rigorously honest with myself. I have to do a fearless moral inventory from time to time. I need to make amends to those who I've hurt or harmed and do so when it seems appropriate to seek them out and to express my regret and my apology for how I have hurt them with my words or my actions, especially as it relates to my addictive personality traits. As a side note to that, something that I was, I was listening to this morning reminded me that when you stop drinking, for example, if you're an alcoholic like I am, when you stop drinking, you think, especially when you're first getting sober, maybe you're, you're fresh out of rehab, maybe you've just started attending Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, whatever the case may be. When you're newly sober, you think to yourself, well, I'm not drinking anymore, so I'm well on my way to recovery. But it takes time. It takes experience. It takes that learning of wisdom, that imparting and imbuing of wisdom that comes from sitting around a table with other alcoholics, that you learn that it's not the alcohol that is your problem. The alcohol was just a tool. It was a vehicle to take you from point A to point B. But that your personality, that's the thing that you have to work on. Your character and how your character developed as a consequence of your using and abusing alcohol and drugs. That it's not as simple as just, I won't drink anymore and therefore I'm not an alcoholic. Not drinking is just the first step. It's unlocking the door to sobriety. You haven't even walked through it. And what you learn then is that your personality is addictive. And as a consequence, I have been addicted to rock climbing, endurance cycling, jujitsu, Muay Thai, uh, addicted to pumpkin bars, addicted to literature, addicted to my kids. It's not just a matter of I'm not drinking or I'm not using and therefore I'm not an addict. It's a matter of recognizing the personality traits of an addictive personality, isolating those personality traits and recognizing, okay, these things about myself, I need to leash because left to their left alone, I am going to slide back into that stinking thinking, as we call it, that addictive behavior. And this springs up for me in particular when I am stressed out. So going back to 2020, I trained harder 
in 2020 than I've probably ever trained. And I dedicated myself to disciplining my mind and my body and my emotions more than any, any other time. As a consequence, I ended up developing a kidney stone that got lodged in my ureter. It was eight and a half centimeters by the time it was discovered. I was admitted to the hospital on Christmas Eve 2020. My white blood cell count was over 120,000. It was like 122,000 by the time I got to the ICU because because I had uh, also then developed sepsis. I was dying. And that's what it took for the good Lord to slow me down and to show me you're doing it again. You're allowing your addictive personality traits off the leash and you've been doing it for about eight months. So every battle was a war. Every engagement was a battle. Everybody that I interfaced with, somehow, other than my coach and my training partners, coaches and training partners, turned into some sort of war of wills. Because, as I've said before, when you walk around with a hammer, everyone starts to look like an, a nail. And when you're fighting battles, you're fighting the state to keep your church open. You're suing the governor and the attorney general to get all the other churches to open. When you're fighting with your peers and your colleagues about illegal and immoral mandates, everyone around you is coming at you with a different perspective, with a different opinion, with a different stance. And you get so bogged down in the fight that even friends become enemies. They become opponents to be battled. And as a consequence, slowly but surely, step by step, I let my addictive personality traits off the leash so that by Christmas Eve, my body said, enough. If you keep going, we're going to die. So my body shut me down. And I ended up in ER for 11 and a half hours in a blizzard waiting for an ambulance to take me to the hospital. I got to the hospital, like I said, 11 and a half hours after I was first admitted, dying. Took two days for the doctor to stabilize me so they could even do anything to me to relieve the pressure, take out or laser and blast away that kidney stone. Then I had to have a catheter inserted because I had to have further procedures done in January. So I had two catheters in the end. It was a terrible two-month-long process. And because of COVID and everything, it was drawn out even further because there was a lack of nurses and doctors, a lack of opportunity to get access to adequate medical care. Even though I sat in the hospital on the oncology wing because two other wings of the hospital had been shut down for lack of patients, the operating wing of the hospital where I had my surgery was all but shut down. Even the lights in reception were shut off. So I sat in the dark in reception waiting for the surgeon to come and get me. And for my surgery, which took an hour, I think, altogether, there were over 15 people in the room because nobody had anything to do. So I had three anesthetists in the room with me because they were bored. <laughs> the initial surgery, check this out. When I was in the hospital waiting to have surgery, the doctor said, we're going to take you down to, to pre-op and get you all set. I had surgery 30 minutes later. Imagine that. In my life, I have never, ever gotten that kind of service before where they came and got me and went, yeah, we're just going to do it right now because we don't have anything else going on. So at least where I am at, 
the whole thing about ICUs and ERs being overrun with patients and the hospitals being full to overflowing, that was a lie. That was a bald-faced lie. And they still won't admit it to this day, but that's beside the point. Thing is, to sum up this little anecdote, I have to be very cautious with myself because I'm an addict. And maybe you're not. But really, as I've said before, an addictive personality is simply your personality turned up to 11. The highs are the highest they'll ever be, and the lows are the lowest they will ever be. So just imagine your normal emotional state. Now just crank that up to its absolute heights and absolute depths, and that's me as an alcoholic on every day if I don't take care of my addictions. Everything's either I need to kill myself because it's never going to get any better and this is the worst it's ever been for anybody in the history of forever, or we need to celebrate. We need to throw a party that lasts for a week because this is the best it's ever been and is ever going to be, and this is the happiest that any person has ever been in the history of happy. That's an addict in a nutshell. At least that's me. And the danger then for myself, especially with mixed martial arts, is that you replace the drugs with the martial arts. But you don't check yourself. And therefore, the training and the focus and purging yourself of that rage and that frustration and that resentment and all of the things that fill you up day after day, but those things that then in an addict's heart are turned up, again, to 11, they're put on blast 24-7, you got to figure out a way to tamp that down and leash it. And for me, that's martial arts. It's sparring, it's training, it's teaching. It gives me focus and it gives me a positive, constructive, productive direction to go with my life and my choices. And then that filters out to the rest of my decisions that I make in the rest of my life. But unchecked then, I pour my addictive personality into my mixed martial arts and then it follows me out of the gym into my everyday life. And because I am the way I am, I'm a wild man. Most people don't really recognize when I slide into that addictive personality, except that I'm more unfiltered, I'm more blunt, more brutal, less caring, less forgiving, less compassionate. I have less time for other people. I run over people. And so it's not as if one day I'm sober and the next day I'm not. It's moment to moment sometimes, minute to minute, hour to hour, just depending on the circumstances. And I think we can all relate to that kind of mood, right? That kind of emotional state. If I'm in a meeting, I hate meetings. Literally, I loathe meetings with a passion. So when I'm in a meeting, I'm bored. I'm bored and I'm frustrated that I have to be in this meeting. And I don't want to be there. And like a fourth grader in his desk, I start to fidget. I start to make faces, I'm distracted, I'm playing games on my iPad, I'm pretending to pay attention, I'll start making comments that aren't helpful because I'm more of a deconstructionist and a contrarian than anything else. So I'm more like, hey, let's just tear it all down and then build it back up again. Whereas everybody else around the tables talking about how we can tweak things and improve things. I have to keep that animal on a leash that maniac that I can turn into has to be kept on a short leash because when he's let off the leash, he just runs through people. And so that rage, like I said, that 
anger, that animosity towards the world, towards God, toward other people. It's got to be leashed. And sparring does that for me. Training does that for me. There's just some days, man, I literally need to get beat up to get that out of me, to work that out of me. And that kind of inner turmoil, that kind of righteous violence, it has to find a positive outlet. Otherwise, it just starts to consume you. And in, if you let it burn, it'll consume those around you. It's Again, it's like any fire. It, as long as there's oxygen, it's going to keep consuming and growing and spreading. So even with this podcast, even with these monologues and these readings, I have to check myself and make sure that when I'm being transparent and honest, I'm not doing it to hurt people. I'm not doing it out of a sense of righteous indignation, but rather that I genuinely care about people and I'm compassionate for people. And I hate to see people suffer and in pain, especially if it's self-chosen. So I may be brutal, and some people have actually referred to me as the Cormac McCarthy of pastors, <laughs> but I do so because the world is brutal, and I do not believe that there is time any longer to mess around and to pretend that we don't see the obvious disintegration of our society and of individuals, that the time for lying that we can ignore or look past people's destructive, harmful decisions, I think that's past. I think it's over. We have to be brutally honest with each other, but kind. We have to call each other to account and hold each other to standards, but be forgiving as well and compassionate. But I don't see standards anymore. And, and if I do find standards or I talk with people about their standards, the standards are so low. Well, I just want to be happy and I just want to be left alone to live my life. Okay, what about your kids? How are you going to teach them the difference between right and wrong? Is, is the, the morality that you inculcate the morality of the consumer? Eat this, digest it, pass it, buy more. Is it watch this show because it has bright lights, and, or as I call them, diarrhea Christmas lights? <laughs> like, what, are you, what are you inculcating? What kind of ethic are you instilling in your children? Or in the, what kind of standard do you set for yourself and others? Because what you tolerate in your presence becomes your standard. If you don't care about your or your children's education, if you don't care about your or your children's moral foundation, if you don't care about their faith or their beliefs, then what do you expect of them when they become adults? If you don't teach them about the value of family, about tribalism, and you're old and you're on your deathbed, and your children aren't there around you, who are you going to blame? Who's responsible for that? When you never took the time to instruct your children in the value of family and the importance of family and why family is of any value whatsoever to them, even into old age. If you don't think about these things for yourself, someone else will. If you don't instruct your children in the way that they should go, the state is more than happy to do that for you political interests, ideologues, activists, social influencers, they will all teach you and your children the way that you should go. And in my opinion, it's never, and I do say never, the way that you should go because it is godless, it is immoral, unethical, and the standard is so low. Just do what we tell you. 
that's why it's attractive. I don't have to think. I don't have to take responsibility for my actions. And therefore, I don't have to accept the consequences of my choices. I'm in. What do I have to do? Whatever you tell me to do, great. Am I happy? Yes. Is there food on the shelf when I go to the store? Yes. Are my children being educated? Seems so. I get a report card. Am I left alone to live my life? For the most part. So things are as good as you could hope they could be. And then when you meet someone with higher standards, you expect them to come down to your standard. This has happened to me numerous times over the summer. People will come to me and expect something from me. And when I say no, like I talked about in the last episode, they'll either start crying or they'll get mad at me and condemn me. They'll judge me. They'll tell me that I'm arrogant and rude, that I'm disrespectful, that I'm not a good pastor, not a good Christian, not a good friend. To which I say, okay, why are you using my principles against me? Why are you trying to leverage me by using my own standard, my own ethic against me? You're a bad Christian. I know that's why I go to church on Sundays and ask the Lord for forgiveness. But calling me a bad Christian isn't going to sway me. It's so obviously manipulative that you're obviously not a good Christian either. (laughs) And if you're not a Christian, why do you care that I am not a good Christian? other than to use the term as an epithet to manipulate me. Well, you're not a good pastor. Yeah, I know. I deal with that every day. And I seek to improve every day. But progress, it's always progress. It's always going back to the workshop, always going back to the workbench and asking, all right, can I be a better teacher? Can I be a better pastor? Can I be a better father and husband? Can I be a better martial artist? Can I be a better man? Yes. How do I do that? Never stop learning. Well, you're rude and arrogant. Okay, and now what? Well, don't be that way. Okay, now what? (laughs) You're only calling me rude and arrogant because I'm not doing what you want. Again, it's manipulative, and it's an extremely facile way to get someone to do what you want them to do for you. Rather than express yourself and explain your motives and your intent for asking for help, you simply start throwing out accusations, ultimatums, condemnations. But how does that further the conversation? We talked about this two episodes ago when we talked about emotions. If you start elevating the emotional energy in this conversation, is the other person going to then elevate their emotions to meet you? Or are they going to back down? This is why you'll see people yell. They bark like a dog. Why are they doing that? Because they're out of control. They feel they're out of control because the other person is not doing what they want. So they start yelling and screaming and making threats. Maybe they put their hands on you even. All of that is simply an expression of what's happening in their head, which is, I need to control this person and they're not under my control. I asked them to do something. I told them to do something and they're not doing it. So I'm going to yell louder. I'm going to start making threats. I'm going to scare them into obedience. And maybe that works for you most of the time. But you're not making friends. You're not building trust. You're not showing others that you care about them and honor and respect them. So what's the end? To be in control? Is that all we want? Is just to selfishly control others and manipulate others for our own ends? That seems to be the way that most people function nowadays. There's predator and there's prey. It's the law of tooth and fang. 
or tooth and claw. And I understand that. I accept the rules of the game. But when you hold yourself to a certain standard, especially a high standard, and others expect you to come down to their standard, that's just not possible. Because to compromise on our standard is to then deprive ourselves of the value that we have garnered for ourselves through hard work and discipline. So I will not lower myself to your standards. But on the other hand, I also don't expect you to rise to my standard. I don't think that's fair also because it's my standard and I've set it for myself. What I do expect you to do is honor and respect my standard to recognize he has very high standards and I either can't or won't rise to meet them. Therefore, we can't be in a relationship. We can't be in a working relationship. I can't train with this person. I can't study under this person. I can't be mentored or pastored by this person. I can't be taught by this person because he values himself too highly and I don't value him in that way. His standards are too high and I can't reach those standards, at least not right now today. Again, simply admitting that for myself anyways, if you can just admit to me we have a different standard, I can respect that because you're taking ownership of your standards, no matter how high or low they are. I meet people occasionally nowadays who have higher standards than me. I am humbled by them. And I walk away thinking to myself, how much work did it take for them to achieve that standard of performance or just living in general? And am I willing to make the sacrifices necessary to rise to that standard? And if not, I just tell them, man, I envy you. How did you get from where I'm at to where you're at? How much work did it take? How much discipline? What did you have to give up to get to where you're at in business or in your relationship with your wife or owning and operating your own gym and teaching all of these students? Like, What did you have to do to get here so that I can learn from you and then from that learning experience, figure out, can I get there or can I not? Or more importantly, am I willing to make the sacrifices necessary to get to where you are at? And if I'm not, I accept that. And I look at those people and I honor and respect them for doing what I am not willing to do. So that being said then, diving into the whole premise for this podcast, the word ethos and what that means. We're reading from an article today entitled Warrior Ethos, Three Things That Spartans, Samurai, and Sioux Have in Common. Samurai, Sioux, and Spartan warriors all came from cultures with a strong warrior ethos. This ethos guided a warrior's approach to warfare and all aspects of his life. And this is from July 31st, 2021 by Andrea Pressel who is a M-Lit in Strategic Studies with Military History Concentration. So let's get going. Andre writes, Late in the summer of 480 BC, a sweat-soaked King Leonidas of Sparta stood in the narrow mountain pass at Thermopylae. Days into a brutal battle with a Persian army ten times the size of his own Greek forces. When Persian King Xerxes had demanded his surrender two days prior, Leonidas replied, Molon Labe, come and take them. For two days, the Greek defendants held their ground, 
But now Leonidas found himself desperately trying to counter a flanking maneuver led by the Greek trader Ephialtes. Ephialtes, there we go, Ephialtes. Foreseeing defeat, but resolute despite it, Leonidas ordered the majority of his army to withdraw to fight another day. Yet someone must stay behind to protect their retreat. Leonidas and 300 of his Spartan warriors selflessly volunteered for the task. The small band successfully protected their comrades' retreat, but in the end they were overrun. All fell to a man. What could the Spartans of Leonidas have in common with the warriors of the samurai and the Sioux? The answer is warrior ethos. But there is more. Here are three things the Spartan, Samurai, and Sioux have in common. Number one, what is warrior ethos? Warrior ethos is defined by the U.S. Air Force Academy as, quote, the embodiment of warrior spirit. Ethos is a derivative of the same Greek word for ethics. And for the warrior comprises a code of conduct that guides his values and actions. So there it is. The ethos, the ethics of the warrior, isn't that he takes up his sword or his gun, puts on a pair of gloves, steps into the cage, and fights. To the death in some cases. No, that's one tiny aspect of being a warrior. At its depth, it's a code of conduct that just doesn't guide him in battle. It guides his values and actions in all of life. So as Andrea continues, it is often an oral code passed down from one warrior to the next. Warrior ethos dictates not just how a warrior should behave toward his enemies, but also how he should relate to his people and overcome his own weaknesses. There it is in a nutshell. We haven't even gone that far. We're trying. We have dedicated ourselves to overcoming our own weaknesses. And how do we do that? Not by turning inward and becoming self-reflective, but by turning outward and learning from other veterans, other warriors, those who have been there and back again. They can teach us because they are essentially coming from our future to us and the president saying, if you continue on this path, this is your future. I've been there. I've lived it. And now I've come back to tell you about it so that you can learn from me. You can learn from my successes and also my mistakes. So not only do you treat your enemy a certain way, but you treat your own people, your clan, your tribe, your team, your brothers and sisters the same way. And you do this by overcoming your own weaknesses. It is a philosophy that must balance the encouragement of active aggression with voluntary self-restraint, as I talked about in relation to addiction. This tension lies at the core of warrior ethos. So you could just as easily call it a warrior ethic, meaning a code of conduct. How do you behave toward your enemy, toward family and friends, toward teammates, toward your brothers and sisters, to your left and right? How do you balance aggression with self-restraint? Voluntary self-restraint. Despite significant cultural and era differences, similarities in warrior ethos pervade, even between the phalanx-forming Spartans of ancient Greece, the katana-wielding samurai of feudal Japan, 
and the equestrian Lakota Sioux archers of the American Old West. Each of these cultures regularly engaged in warfare and were no strangers to -to hand-to-hand combat. Each developed an ethos, unique to their geopolitical contexts, yet with striking similarities. Here are three things that the Spartan, Samurai, and Sioux have in common. Okay, so this is all about active aggression and voluntary self-restraint. It's all about conquering weakness and developing a code of conduct. How do you carry yourself? How do you behave toward your enemy, toward family and friends, toward your brothers and sisters? Number one, though the Lakota Sioux were phenomenal archers, there was more to warfare than killing enemies from a safe distance. Personal honor strongly dictated how war was fought by demanding demonstrations of bravery and skill. The well-known practice of counting coup topped the list of impressive battlefield acts. A warrior counted coup by approaching and physically touching an enemy without causing him harm. Each successful coup was rewarded with an eagle feather and a higher status of honor amongst the warrior's people. In counting coup, the Sioux warrior voluntarily risked death for the sake of personal honor. So if you've ever seen a picture of an Indian chief, for example, wearing a feathered headdress, originally, those feathers represented the fact that he rode into battle and counted coup. And each feather was one of those moments. So of course, if you have a headdress that reaches all the way down to the ground, you are an incredibly brave man and therefore worthy to be called chief. I have a picture of my great-grandmother who grew up in Montana back in the day. Her parents were missionaries to Montana. They built a school and a hospital. She was a missionary herself to South Dakota, if that tells you how old my great-grandma was when she died. And her and her friend, when they were, I think, 17 or 18 years old, posed with the chief of the Indian village on which uh, the mission was built next to village. Did I say village? Uh, What do you call those things that they put Indians on? (laughs) Oh yeah, reservation. That's it. And this man, this chief, and this picture was taken in the early 1920s, I believe. This Indian chief had a headdress that reached down to the ground and splayed out like a snake's tail behind them. This man was an incredibly brave warrior. He was an actual Lakota Sioux Indian an actual warrior who had been in countless battles. And so those feathers weren't just for show. They weren't for theater. He wasn't just at the county fair to take pictures with white face people, you know, the white men, to make money. He was on his reservation. These were his people, his tribe, and he was their chief. And just the thought of that when I was little, because I remember watching a movie, a Western, with my dad late at night once. And I saw this happen where the cowboys and Indians were fighting. It was the cavalry versus the Indians. And one of the Indians had his war club. And it was a long club, but it had a knot at the end of it, a wooden knot. And he rode past a soldier and touched him on the head with it. And even at a young age... That struck me as being odd that in this movie where they're shooting and killing Indians and the Indians are shooting and their bows and arrows and throwing spears and killing the cavalrymen, 
this Indian was touching guys on the head. <laughs> I, I just, I couldn't understand that. So I asked my dad who, he taught um, high school history, U.S. history, U.S. literature, and political science. And I asked him, what is that? He said, that's called counting coup. And he explained what counting coup meant. And even at that little young age of eight, nine, ten years old, I remember how impressed I was by that. And how I thought, well, that means that that guy that just did that, he's the best warrior on the entire field of battle. He's got to be, because nobody else was doing that. And I think about that then, to this day, obviously, that happened 42, 41 years ago for me. But it's imprinted itself on my brain that you don't always have to destroy someone to prove that you are worthy of their respect. In fact, quite often, that's not the way you gain someone's respect. Sometimes it's a matter of letting that person know, I could hurt you. I could damage you catastrophically, but I choose to show you mercy, which is to your dishonor and to my honor. Now, we don't award eagle's feathers anymore. Because, well, it's a different time and a different tradition. We don't really have a warrior culture in the United States anymore, other than small groups here and there, very specialized classes of people within their vocations. There's not a lot of people that voluntarily risk death for the sake of personal honor anymore. And therefore, their standards are understandably low. Because in their daily life, they do not think that they are in danger from an enemy they do not feel their lives are under threat. And therefore, they treat everyone and everything around them as if it's permanent, as if it's replaceable, as if their choices don't have serious consequences. And at least where I live at, that's mostly true. We've done a great job in the United States of nerfing reality and insulating ourselves from reality. We put old people in homes. We put the mentally handicapped in group homes. We keep children with diseases off in their own corner of the hospitals. When was the last time, for example, now that I'm thinking about it, when was the last time you saw somebody with Down syndrome anywhere? Because when I was little, my mom worked at a day activity center. That's what it was called. And it was a place where adult and children who were mentally handicapped came and either it was kind of like a preschool for the mentally handicapped children, but also then it was activities for the adults. So they would, for example, recycle cans. That was one of their jobs. Um, they had other jobs where they would make crafts, and then those crafts would be used by the Red Cross or the Salvation Army or other charitable organizations for fundraising. But also then we would go for walks. We'd go to the park. We would go to movies at the mall. We'd go out to restaurants for lunch. And so when I was little, seven, eight, nine, ten years old, I had no problem interfacing with people that were mentally handicapped because I grew up around them. When I was forming as an, as an adolescent, I would go to the movies with them. I would go for walks with them. I would sit and talk with them. And I just thought they were big kids. Sometimes they would even come over to our house for dinner. So then as I got older and I got into high school and people started making fun of, of people with Down syndrome or, or other mentally handicapped people. I didn't understand why they were doing that because I didn't grow up that way. My parents never talked that way about the mentally handicapped. And so I would never do that. 
it was one of the things I remember in high school that I would just never engage in that. I would never joke around about it or join in. I would just be there on the fringe observing because I just didn't understand at the time how you could be so cruel. Yes, it's one thing to attack each other. You're in high school and everything that goes with that, cutting each other down, giving each other weird nicknames, bullying each other with your words. I get that. It's part of the high school experience, part of being a teenager. But why would you then target those who are not able to defend themselves? People who, in my experience then, were adult children because mentally they had not developed past the age of eight or nine or 10. And so I just, it hurt me deeply. And it hurts me now even talking about it all these years later. Why would you choose to attack and pick on and victimize people who cannot stand up for themselves? cannot defend themselves, and by the way, don't need to stand up for themselves or defend themselves because they're innocents. Why is that? In fact, after I got, or actually while I was doing my PhD, uh, writing my dissertation, my wife and I managed group homes for a company in the Twin Cities. And again, working with the mentally handicapped, I did that after college too. So throughout my life, I've interfaced and worked with the handicapped. And at no time did I ever think to myself, what I need to do is insult this person and put them down for being mentally handicapped. I need to push them around and treat them like they're idiots. They're not idiots. They're just mentally handicapped. And in my opinion, if you can't find compassion and mercy and kindness for mentally handicapped people, then you're not going to be able to find it for anybody else, not for children or other adults. And, and I don't mean this to sound cheeky or, or, or funny, but if we can't treat other people like they're mentally handicapped when we're frustrated with them, if we can't see them the same way we see like a small child or a mentally handicapped person, maybe that's what we need to do is think to ourselves, I would never think to say or do this if this person were an adolescent or mentally handicapped. So why am I doing this to them now? Why am I treating them as if they're lesser than I am and I'm not showing them compassion and I'm not showing them kindness? Just make that comparison and ask yourself, why am I treating this person differently? And if they had a mental handicap, would I treat them the same way? If this person were eight, would I treat them the same way? As we talked about on the emotional maturity episode and on the objectivity episode, the last two episodes, you have to treat people according to their emotional age, not their biological age. Otherwise, the interaction is just not going to go well. You have to recognize that in, in terms of the article, your enemy or your opponent, or just somebody that you're having a disagreement with. Maybe it's, again, your partner, someone you love. But for the sake of this monologue, let's just call them the enemy in the context of the reading. How do you treat them? What standard do you set for yourself? Do you practice voluntary self-restraint? Do you recognize that in this conversation, in this verbal and emotional battle that we're having right now, I'm hurting this person and they're hurting me. But why are we hurting each other if we care about each other? Why are we hurting each other if we have to work together and train together? If this person were an adolescent or mentally handicapped or in a situation or position in which they needed my help or my understanding or my compassion, would I treat this person the same way? And therefore, what am I doing to justify to myself speaking to them in this way and treating them as if they're lesser than me. 
Because again, going back to the Hagakuri, I reference this all the time now. When you choose an enemy, you don't punch down. You choose an enemy, which under different circumstances, you would be proud to call him your friend. So when a Sioux warrior counts coup on you, they're saying to you, I could have killed you, but I choose self-restraint, which again is to your dishonor and to my honor. And now at any time in the future, if I decide to, I can kill you. And you have to live with that too, knowing that I could have killed you and that I can. And that is a walking death. That is a death that you cannot count on to release you from the troubles and afflictions of this world. So in a way, that walking death is worse than if I had driven a hatchet through your skull. To continue then, it's common for warrior cultures to value honor even above death more highly. Spartan mothers commonly told their sons, return with your shield or carried on it to discourage them from cowardice, the cowardice of abandoning their heavy shields to flee battle. This instruction was especially pertinent given the Spartan phalanx formation of interlocking shields to form a shield wall. The phalanx was nearly impregnable unless one of its members broke rank. As Plutarch explained, Spartan warriors who lost their shields received the death penalty because the shield protects every man in the line. Discipline and loyalty to one's comrades were key aspects of retaining one's personal honor in the Spartan warrior ethos. And for more on discipline and loyalty and worth, go back and listen to my Tolkien episode and the episode before that on the Germanic warrior ethos. But if you can't prove yourself loyal in battle, when everything is on the line, even life itself, how can we trust you with the small things of daily life? How can we count on you to love your neighbor as you yourself need to be loved when you abandoned your neighbor when he needed you the most? Are you going to take care of his wife and kids now that he's dead? Or when the, t- the going gets tough, are you going to turn and run away again? Because you set a precedent now. You're a runner. You're a coward. You're now going to put the entire tribe at risk, the entire village, the entire city because of your cowardice. We're going to allow that. It's one thing to have a moment where you want to run. It's another thing to catch yourself in the next moment and say, no, I'm not going to run. Not because I'm not afraid. And it's not because I want to stand here and kill the enemy. I don't run because if I do, my brothers in arms will die. And I can't live with that kind of shame. And in Greek culture, in Spartan culture, they're going to kill me anyway, so what's the point? Discipline and loyalty. They go hand in hand. If you're not disciplined, if you're not going to do what's necessary in that moment, even though you don't want to, how can you prove yourself loyal? But proving yourself loyal proves that you have the discipline necessary to stand shoulder to shoulder, shield in place, accepting this is where I'm at. This is what we are doing together. And none of us is going to budge an inch because to do so would mean the death of us all. And I'm not going to be the one to carry that. So I stand fast. The samurai warriors also considered personal honor to be more important than survival. 
For him, honor required loyalty to his lord, or daimyo. This loyalty extended beyond life. The samurai's unwritten warrior ethos, known as the Code of Bushido, emphasized a willingness to die for one's daimyo or cause. Loyalty unto death was so central for the samurai that they were expected to commit ritual suicide, seppuku, or junshi, if their honor was compromised. A samurai named Daidoji Yusan wrote down 56 lessons from the oral code of Bushido, each articulating strict tenets that must be followed to maintain personal honor. The very first lesson is titled, quote, Make Life Replete, Constantly Thinking of Death. And the last lesson is entitled, Great Loyalty That Surpasses Junshi. So the highest duty is to the people. This is number two in the warrior ethos. Number one, honor and the way of death. Number two, the highest duty is to the people. Spartan society revolved around the military defense of the people. Boys joined the army barracks at seven years old and did not leave active duty until the age of 60. Men were required to live in the communal barracks until age 30, whether or not he was married. Women, too, participated in this aspect of warrior ethos. Their highest duty was to birth sons to become warriors. Babies with physical defects or other flaws were left on hillsides to die from exposure. Spartan warriors learned from a young age that loyalty to the people was paramount. It was more important even than family. So that's another thing that we just lack today, a common cause a higher thing, something that is greater than ourselves, something that is more important than the individual. In this hyper-individuated, hyper-tolerant, hyper-emotional climate in which we currently find ourselves, loyalty to a higher cause, loyalty to the people, it's almost unfathomable to people at this point that it could even exist. Just look at the political space. Is there anybody who's halfway rational that doesn't regard the political space as entirely corrupt, perverse, and untrustworthy? Is there anything that politicians do at the federal or state level that benefit the citizens? And when they claim that they've done something to benefit the citizens, do you take the time to read the fine print to find out that it turns out it's a bait and switch? What higher cause do politicians appeal to? For their actions? What ethics do they hold themselves to when they have no morality? What people do they represent when they use us for our tax dollars? They exploit and manipulate us with, through fear in order to benefit themselves. If you think about it, and I have <laughs> quite often actually, it's a form of therapy for me, if we lived amongst the Spartans now, most of the politicians in Congress and the Senate would be executed. Most of the people in our society wouldn't even be alive because they would have been left on a hillside or executed long ago. And yes, that's harsh. I understand that. It's a different time. However, even if we had a standard that didn't involve 
leaving babies on hillsides or executing people for their cowardice. Even if we had a, a standard for the entire population, a standard of ethics and morality, a standard of behavior that we would all apply to because it was for the benefit of all, such as not putting your bare feet up on the seat when the people in front of you on the airplane don't want to smell your toes for the rest of the flight. Not being on your phone while you're driving at 80 miles an hour on the highway. Not pushing in front of people at the checkout line at the store. Not yelling at people and threatening people from across the street because they're not behaving the way you want them to. Not allowing homeless people to fill up your parks and live in your storefronts or in front of your house. It's an interesting thing about New York City is that the, the city subsidizes the homeless while simultaneously complaining about the homeless. I watched a short clip last night about how in New York City they've altered the architecture of the grates that, come, that allow air in and out of the subways. And in the past, that's where homeless people would sleep. They would sleep on top of these grates because in the wintertime, obviously, there's hot air coming out of them. Well, it's a problem because there's so many homeless people, they're blocking these grates so that no air can get in or out. So the city's wisdom was, we'll change the architecture of the grates so that it's impossible for someone to lay on them. So they did. So on the one hand, you subsidize the homeless. And on the other hand, you're saying, we have a homeless problem. Well, which is it? You want to subsidize them and encourage homeless people to live in New York City, or they're a problem and you want to drive them out of New York City. It sounds like a bait and switch to me. It sounds like typical bureaucracy. One office saying this, the other office saying that. And no one benefits in the end, other than the politicians because they raise your taxes. We have no standards anymore. We have no set of values by which we apply this standard to these people and say, Listen, you're not meeting the standard, so either come up to the standard and meet it because you're my representative, or we're going to remove you forcefully if necessary. We don't have that standard anymore, and the politicians know this, which is why they're constantly exploiting us and telling us their plans. And people say, why are they telling us what they're doing? Why aren't they lying anymore? Why aren't they doing these things in secret in these backroom deals? Because they know now that we're not going to do anything if they raise our taxes. We're not going to do anything if they send hundreds of billions of dollars to Afghanistan and Ukraine and Yemen and other places. They know. The American people have no standard. They have no ethics. And therefore, why do we care? As George Carlin said, if you complain about the politicians, remember, this is the best that we can do. These are people that came from American families in American homes, they went through American schools, they grew up in American communities. This is the best we can do. And you voted for them. So it's your fault. In the end, it's your fault if you voted for them. You cannot complain about politicians and what they're doing or not doing for you and their constituents because you voted for these people. And yes, the fact of the matter is your vote doesn't count because the entire thing has been manipulated and rigged for generations at this point. 
Your representative, as they're called, is chosen for you long before you even know their name or see their face. These people are chosen and groomed from a very young age. And when they are trotted out at the DNC or the RNC conventions, those big pep rallies they hold, they've already been vetted. They've already been tweaked and photoshopped and they've got handlers and reps and everything. And you're, these people are shown to you because you're going to vote for them. And your vote covers up their subterfuge, their manipulation. That's why there is a vote. This isn't a democracy. We don't live in a democracy. We live in a banana republic. By encouraging people to vote every four years, by creating chaos every four years, by creating race riots and race wars and division every four years, between black, white, male, female, rich, and poor, it keeps us distracted so that they can continue to formulate and carry out their plan, which is, this is my successor. This is the man or woman that's going to now replace me in Congress or the Senate. And to keep the American people under our spell, we're going to do the same thing we do every four years. So wait until next year. Wait for the chaos that's going to come next year when it comes time for the candidates to start ramping up for the elections in 2024. Wait and see what happens. Wait and see what happens this fall in the buildup to the midterm elections. How many mass shootings are going to happen this fall? Is there going to be another lockdown because there'll be another outbreak of COVID or something, some mutation this fall? Will there be riots in the cities this fall? Just watch. Just watch, especially in the swing states, as they're called. It's all manipulation. It's all theater. It's all for our benefit to keep us dumb and cowed so that we keep going to the voting booth, keep voting thinking that our vote counts so that we can keep complaining about how bad they are and how dishonorable they are, how dishonest they are, immoral, corrupt. But we do nothing about it. Two weeks ago, an article came out, and it was from someone who had been caught up in the Epstein case. He was a fashion designer, originally from Canada. He admits in correspondence and in audio recordings to impregnating teenage girls, then taking their babies and aborting them so that he could drink the blood. He admits this. He admits it out loud. And then he starts naming the names of other people that do this too. And there's not a few celebrities and American politicians included in that and some members of the British royalty, of course, as well. It's all in print. It's all from interviews. They admit to drinking babies' blood. They admit to having sex with teenagers and in engaging in human trafficking. They admit to murdering babies so they can drink their blood. They name the names of other people that are also a part of this. But when you show that to normal people, to civilians, they refuse to accept reality. That the people that they follow, the people whose products they buy, the people who they watch on movies and TV, the people that they vote for, also do these things. It doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or a Republican. It's all one party, two wings of the same bird. They're all in bed together. They have all been chosen for you and you accept it. They know this. They know we're not going to revolt. They know there's not going to be any kind of revolution. 
And that's why they keep raising our taxes, keep lying to our faces about reality. You don't have to be an economics major to know that printing more money doesn't reduce inflation. It actually creates greater inflation. You don't have to be an expert in geopolitics to know that the United States handed Afghanistan off to the Chinese communist government. Everything's shifting. And nobody wants to accept reality because nobody has any standards. No honor. And no shame for that matter. Because no consequences. Yet. So samurai warriors comprised the elite warrior class in Japan, the peak of martial skill. They also served as role models for the people in every other area of life. The Bushido Code highly valued selflessness, self-discipline, high levels of scholarship, and ethical behavior. Well, there you go. How many people do you know comprise these attributes? Selflessness, self-discipline, high level of scholarship, and ethical behavior. Definitely not politicians. What about the teachers at your children's school? What about your coaches at the gym? What about members of your own family? What about your friends? What about your coworkers? They might embody one or two of these attributes, but all four, selflessness, self-discipline, high level of scholarship and ethical behavior. Think of the discipline and the sacrifice that it takes to develop selflessness, self-discipline, to hold yourself to a high level of learning and to ethical behavior. I would argue all four actually work in tandem with each other or tandem on tandem. These are virtues. These are attributes. They're ethics, a code of conduct. How many people do you know hold themselves to this? The irony as a Christian is that I don't even really know many Christians that hold themselves to this standard. And these are the types of things that are actually taught in the Bible too. This is common wisdom. The difference being that the Bible says this is what God has built into his creation. These are objective truths. These are objective virtues. They're a part of natural law, selflessness, self-discipline, high level of learning, ethical behavior. Why? Not for yourself, but for others. You do this so that others are benefited by you. But we don't care about other people anymore. We only care about ourselves. We only, we only care about what we can get for ourselves and what we need for ourselves, what pleases us, what satisfies our cravings. We don't care about other people. We say it all the time. It's a, it's a cultural ethic. I don't care what you do in your own home as long as it doesn't affect me, which is a lie because everything finds its way out of the home into society eventually. So using these virtues, samurai were expected to maintain peace and order within society. For example, during the Edo period, samurai served as the fire brigade in Edo, which is modern-day Tokyo, complete with fire uniforms. They were the first responders to other crises such as floods and were responsible for disaster relief. Throughout multiple periods of instability, samurai warriors acted as a stabilizing force by militarily upholding Japanese society's pillars, serving as ethical examples for the lower classes and protecting the people from disasters. And isn't that a secondary effect of 
the word ethos is you now serve as an example and as a mentor to others in order to say, you can do this too. This is all it requires. Selflessness, self-discipline. You need to educate your mind. You need to train yourself up in such a way that this behavior that comes from these things is then available to help and assist others. And last, while the Sioux highly valued personal prowess in battle, the warrior's highest duty was to defend his people. The warrior was, after all, not just a warrior. He was also a hunter, provider, and contributing member of society. And this is demonstrated by the four virtues held in the highest esteem by the Lakota Sioux. Bravery, generosity, wisdom, and fortitude. Bravery, generosity, wisdom, and fortitude. Young men who proved exceptional in these areas were elected to an elite committee called the Shirt Wearers. They were responsible for putting the welfare of the people above all else. Likewise, all Sioux leaders, both military and civilian, were voluntarily followed based on their reputation and character. There it is. Imagine if we ran politics this way today. You're only allowed to represent us based on your reputation and your character. That's supposedly the standard that we hold our politicians to. But again, if these people are the best that we can produce, what does that say about us? If they're disreputable and they are of bad character, what does that say about the people who voted for them? What does that say about us as a people that we accept these people? as our leaders, when they're obviously not worthy to be our leaders according to any metric that is pre-modern, pre-postmodern. If we hold them to the Spartan, the Samurai, or the Sioux Code of Ethics, at no point do any of our current politicians and leaders pass the test. I would say the same for pastors, teachers, doctors, professors, Lawyers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Think of the thought leaders in our communities. Think of the leaders in our communities. How many of them embody the virtues of bravery, generosity, wisdom, and fortitude? And how many of them do we hold up to the standard of you are only allowed to be a leader in the school or in the workplace, or on the city council, or on the school board, based on your reputation and your character. I see it all the time. We base it on who wants the job, because nobody wants the job. Why? Because the real new normal, as Tom McDonald sings, is negativity. All we do is tear each other down. All we do is talk about what's bad and what's wrong. It's all pessimism and nihilism all day, every day. So of course nobody wants to sit on a board. Nobody wants to be in the meeting. No one wants to run for office because they know the consequence. Just constantly being torn down because the people around you are of bad reputation and bad character. And your presence as a person of good reputation and good character is like a mirror held up to them, showing them who they actually are. And who wants that? 
Who wants to be reminded that they're liars, two-faced hypocrites, thieves, con artists? I mean, the whole reason that the federal government got like attacked and destroyed the mob is so that they could take over the business of the mob. That's the kind of character politicians have. Oh, these people over here are making a whole bunch of money and we don't get to tax them on that money? All right, we're going to destroy them. Well, what are we going to do with the drugs and the guns and the prostitution and the extortion? Well, we're going to legalize it and regulate it at the federal level so that we benefit from it. Every president is just the part of some crime family. That's all they are. I said this a couple years ago. You have the Biden crime family, which is really the Obama crime family, and you have the Trump crime family. It's all just crime families vying for power. That's why they burned down our cities. That's why people were murdered. Her name is Ashley Babbitt. Never forget her name. She was herded into the kill zone and shot in the face by Capitol Police. She was sacrificed for the sake of theater and optics. And her name is Ashley Babbitt. And she was a victim. But think of the people in your city, in your neighborhood. Think of the buildings and the businesses that will never reopen because the mayor and the police chief allowed the city to burn. Why? So they could cover their trail. So they could cover up what they were actually doing, which was making sure that Trump lost and that the old crime family regained their power. It doesn't take a lot of thought or research to discover that the Biden White House is actually the Obama White House and that this is his third term. It doesn't take a lot of research to find out that Xi Jinping, who runs the Chinese Communist government, is also making the choices and decisions for the White House. Again, this is all public information. It's easy to find if you just search for it. You can go on the Band Pastors Telegram group. That's the one that I and another pastor run. We post this stuff constantly. Our page on Telegram, our platform, whatever you want to call it, we just it just serves as an aggregate for all of these things. We do the research, and I have people all over the world scraping the internet for me on a daily basis. They just volunteer to do it. Some I ask to do it. But I have people scraping the internet all the time for me, digging this stuff up for me, providing links for me, data. It's one of the benefits of these, these types of platforms, to me anyways. So thank you to all of you who do that for me too. But let's have no illusions that our society does not run based on reputation and character. It doesn't operate based on bravery, generosity, wisdom, and fortitude. That's a given, man. That's a given. What's it run on? The opposite. Cowardice, selfishness, foolishness, cowardice, bad characters with bad reputations. And because we have such low standards, we tolerate it. And therefore, our standards simply continue to get lower and lower. There are no shirt wearers in my community other than me and my family. I can't really think of anybody else that meets all four criteria, that is focused on all four criteria. So if you want this, you have to do it yourself and you have to seek out those who also embody these virtues, these attributes. Because it's just not common anymore. In fact, not only is it not common, it's vilified, it's demonized. 
in our society, in the United States in particular. And yet in Sioux culture, these shirt wearers, they were afforded the highest honor because they took care of other people. So likewise then, military and civilian leaders were followed voluntarily based on reputation and character. And as such, leaders were chosen not only for their personal qualities, but also for their dedication to defend the people. How many members of Congress and the Senate have served in the military in combat? How many of them dove under their chairs during the January 6th fiasco theater staged by the FBI and the chair of uh, the DNC, the Speaker of the House who runs the Capitol Police? All of them, like cowards. And then they start comparing it to 9-11 and Pearl Harbor and all this nonsense. That's what cowards do. They blow everything out of proportion because they have no point of reference. They're cowards. They're fools. They're selfish. They're weak. They surround themselves with men with guns who possess none of the attributes of the politicians. Yes, the American citizen shouldn't have guns. Meanwhile, I'm surrounded by men with guns. (laughs) It's so ridiculous and so obvious. It's like when people complain to me that we need stricter gun laws. And I ask, well, why? Well, to stop mass shootings, of course, and to stop these these spree killers and and so forth. And I say, "How how does taking guns away from me stop maniacs and psychopaths and sociopaths and mentally ill people from acquiring guns and shooting people. And by taking the guns away from me, how does that not violate the Second Amendment shall not be infringed upon? When the FBI or the state police and the ATF show up at your front door because you you purchased too many guns at one time and we need to see your guns to make sure that you're not breaking any laws, what part of shall not be infringed upon did you not understand? These people that tell us that the government is evil and that police are evil and that we need to defund the police and defund the FBI and the government's the enemy of the people, they're also the same people in the next breath who say only police should have guns, only the FBI should have the authority to break, you know, to go into people's homes without a warrant. Only the federal government should be allowed to regulate gun laws. It's like, wait, so the state's evil and police are racist and corrupt and kill people. But only they should have guns. And only they should determine the law about gun, guns and gun control. And you don't recognize how you just contradicted yourself? This is the problem in our society as I see it. People are so thoughtless that they just spout sound bites that they heard on the news or they picked up from a meme on social media. They don't think about these things. They just go, I agree. (laughs) And then they spout it off. They parrot it without recognizing you just contradicted yourself. You just played yourself, playa. You can't say the government's evil, then tell me we need to give more power to the government. You can't say that the police are racist, but that only the police should have guns. What are you doing? You don't know what you're doing because you're thoughtless. You're a drone. You're brainwashed. Your sheep. And you go where you are herded. You follow the tune of the piper. You are a slave. 
So number three, Spartan warriors, he who sweats more in training bleeds less in war. Samurai training began in childhood with a combination of Bushido, Zen Buddhism, and Kendo, which is the way of the sword. Because of the samurai's preoccupation with dying, young trainees were conditioned not to fear death. This included exposing the child to intense temperatures, assigning him difficult tasks, and familiarizing him with executions. Poof. He was taught rigorous emotional control and contempt for physical pain. This combination of high pain tolerance and low regard for persona safety, personal safety, typo there, created an almost reckless warrior in combat. Throughout different eras, samurai warriors were trained in mounted archery, spears, military tactics, martial arts, guns, and of course, swords. Isn't interesting? I think I mentioned this when we were reading the Hagakure, or Bushido by Nazo Natobe, how similar Bushido is to Stoicism in the memento mori sense of, yeah, today could be the day you die, so make friends with death. Get comfortable with death. Think about it. Meditate on it so that you can truly live. Accept that you're going to die and you can't control when that happens. All you can control is your response to death and your fear of death. Both the Stoics and the Samurai trained up their youth in this way. So you expose your child to intense situations. You assign them difficult tasks that break them down and build them up. I'm not going to take my kids to an execution anytime soon, but I get the point. It's to teach you rigorous emotional control. Like I talked about with the 12 steps of AA, rigorous honesty. That's what it says, to engage in rigorous honesty. What does it mean to be rigorous? It means that you are firm and inflexible and you do this often. Rigorous. Emotional control, contempt for physical pain. Yes, absolutely. 100%. Why do I train the way I do? Because I despise physical pain. And I despise how it limits and holds me back. Because weakness feeds into fear and insecurity. And the weaker you are, the more afraid and insecure you are. And the stronger you are, the less you're afraid of discomfort, of pain, whether it be physical or emotional pain, you develop a tolerance for it. I was talking to my oldest son on the way home from the gym last night about that. When you first start training and how freaked out you get when someone puts pressure on you, you feel like you're drowning. You feel like, oh, this is what death feels like. And now, after training since he was 15, he's going to be 20 in January, when someone's on top of him, squeezing on him, grinding into him, driving their weight into him, he just relaxes finds his moment, finds his opening, and moves, gets out of the way. But it takes time to develop that tolerance. Accept the pain. Stay relaxed. Think. Don't get emotional. Well, how do you do that? Rigorous emotional control through the development of contempt for physical pain. How many people do you know avoid physical pain at all costs? And therefore lack emotional control. Why? Well, because they don't develop a pain tolerance. Why? Because they're afraid of pain. Why? Because they're weak. It's a cycle. It's a syllogism. I'm weak, so I fear pain. And because I fear pain, it makes me weaker. 
and the weaker I get, the more I fear pain. And around and around we go. To the point now where words are considered violence. And me saying to a fat person, you're unhealthy, causes them so much emotional pain that they refuse to listen to my podcast anymore. Why? Because you're weak. And why are you weak? Because you're afraid of physical pain. And around and around we go. There used to be a show. I don't know if it's still on or anything. I just remember when it was really popular called The Biggest Loser, where they would have all these morbidly obese people get together and then they would go through these rigorous workouts and then they'd you know, get on the scale at the end of every episode and you're the weakest link, so you have to leave the show and then they'd have the big finale and, of course, the big reveal. They'd come out in their, their dress or their, their suit and, hey, I lost this much weight. Now, after the fact, it was proven that it was terribly uh, physically unhealthy to do what they were doing and that the show was behaving in a really unethical, immoral way towards these people and taking advantage of them, obviously, for the sake of the show. But I think there's something to doing that. I watched an interview with Bam Margera the other day. He's been in rehab for a year because that's how profound his addiction is. He finally had to just admit, I can't just go to a meeting. I can't just go to counseling. I can't just live my life and manage my addiction. It's way bigger than that. So I need to check myself into a rehabilitation center to deal with my addiction for as long as it takes. And he's been there a year. He had to get permission based on his character and his reputation in the rehab facility to do Steve-O's podcast. That's how locked down he is. But he realized, if I don't do this, I'm going to die. I'm going to kill myself. And I've just been avoiding the truth for too long. I can't do this by simply going to group, going to meetings, going to counseling, talking with people. I can't do it. This isn't how I'm going to get out of this. I have to do whatever is necessary to get clean and sober for the final time. And this is how I'm going to do it. He exposed himself to pain and was emotionally honest with himself and acknowledged and admitted, I need to take drastic steps to get control of my addiction, to get control of my life. And avoiding pain and avoiding my addiction and avoiding the fact that I'm out of control isn't helping. And these half measures, as it turns out they are, it's not helping either. And so maybe, well, obviously I wouldn't be talking about it if I didn't believe in it, but if we would simply take these virtues of the samurai, the Sioux, and the Spartans and apply them to these group activities such as you want to lose weight? We're going to expose you to physical pain. We're going to expose you to these emotional traumas that are going to come out of this physical pain. And we're going to teach you how to control your emotions. I'm going to teach you how to think for yourself again. You want to overcome your addiction? We're going to do the same thing. We're going to lock you down and we're going to teach you these things and we're going to expose you to these things. Because these are the things that are missing from your life, these virtues. Imagine what would happen if we ran retreats like that. It'd be fantastic. I'd love to run a retreat, like a weekend retreat or something, or a week-long retreat for people who are overcoming addiction, for example, or recovering from their addictions, and teach them Muay Thai and Jiu-Jitsu. Teach them about faith and belief. Teach them about ethics 
and the warrior ethos. I'd love to do that. And if there's anybody listening who has the resources and the space and the means to do that, volunteer me. I'll sign up to be a part of that program. I'll help. Because what better way to give back to people than to be of service to people? It's the 12th step of AA. (laughs) But I would love to do that. I've been thinking about it a lot this summer. I don't have the resources or the means or the time to do that. But I would love to be a part of it, whether it's for a weekend or a week. Teach them jujitsu. Make them uncomfortable and get them comfortable being uncomfortable. Teach them Muay Thai, striking, standing grappling. Teach them about faith and belief and what that means. Teach them about virtue and ethics and what that means and how it applies to their entire life. Give them the tools to then operate in their life in such a way that they can improve themselves, that they can use that discipline and that loyalty in relation to themselves, their family, their friends, their teammates, their coworkers, and carry that message out, then there's an option. And it's not acceptance. It's not hypertolerance. It's not denying objective reality. It's embracing your weaknesses. It's embracing your failings. It's embracing your addictions and saying, no mas, enough is enough. I'm going to stand up. I'm going to hold the line. I'm going to change my life for the better. And this is how I'm going to do it. So then lastly, the Lakota Sioux warriors began training in childhood amidst a legacy of hero stories. He was taught generosity, loyalty, courage, and self-mastery. Again, the similarities. All men in the camp participated in mentoring young men in warrior ethos and encouraging them to compete in all things, wrestling, running, hunting. This is what comprised a boy's upbringing. And he underwent a series of rituals to make him into a man and a warrior, including crafting his own weapons, counting his first coup, and going on a vision quest. For the vision quest, the Sioux warrior went into the plains alone and fasted for two to seven days, during which he might be visited by a spiritual guide who would aid him in war. Oh, it's so great. It's just so great. But again, we don't, we don't do these things anymore. And as a consequence... We have no premise. We have no, no basis to work off of by which we can then judge progress, <coughs> development, excuse me. Any of the things that are necessary, especially for young boys, but also for young girls, to set standards, to build a set of values for them as they get older so that as they get older, they understand this is the standard and this is the value. And this is my standard, and these are my values. And I'm going to carry them forward for the sake of my family, my friends, my teammates, my colleagues, whoever it might be. And I will not compromise my standards. I will not come down in my values for you. I will not lower myself to your level. Because to do that is to make me lesser than as a woman, as a man. And therefore, it is to make those around me lesser than. And I refuse to do that to the people who look to me as an example, as a mentor of a person who embraces and embodies these virtues. Plus, my entire life is better because of these virtues. Why would I seek to unimprove my life? Why would I do that? You wouldn't. But we're expected to do that by people with lower standards every day. And they don't understand why we say no. 
So finally then, finally, after joining the army barracks at age seven, Spartan boys underwent a militaristic education known as the Ogoge. Their regime involved athletics, hunting, and the basics of reading and writing. Isn't that interesting that three different peoples from three different eras, from three different geographic locations, embraced almost the same virtues, raised their children in almost the exact same way, according to the same ethical principles, the same code of conduct. It's almost as if these are objective facts, objective truths, and that they're all available to us if we simply pay attention. This isn't a Western ethic because the samurai embraced it. It's not an industrial society's ethic because pre-industrial Sioux and samurai warriors embraced this ethic. So did the Spartans. It's not isolated. It's not an anachronism. It's not just the Spartans or just the Sioux or just the samurai. It's not just this time period. No. All of these are different places, different times, different people. And yet they all embraced and embodied the same ethic. Isn't that, that's just wild to me that it's so obvious when you go down this rabbit hole that these are objective truths. And I think that's why we reject them today because they're not subjective and they're not my truth, as we say. And God forbid we subject ourselves to anyone else and learn from anybody else and acknowledge that other people might be superior to us or that they have something to teach us. God forbid that everything isn't my subjective experience of reality. Because that's really what postmodernism is. It's a war against objective reality. So I'm going to change the definition of words. I'm going to delete history. I'm going to rewrite history. I'm going to change everything about objective reality because I don't like it. Well, why don't you like it? Because I didn't get a choice. I didn't get a vote. There's not two genders. There's as many genders as I say there are. Why? Because that's my choice. Okay, that's very adult of you. But look back at these three groups, these three different generations, these three different geopolitical locations. What do we see? Same virtues kids being raised the same way, producing some of the greatest warriors in history, some of the strongest societies in history. Was it harsh? Yeah, absolutely. Was it extreme? I would, yeah, by today's standards, it's very, very extreme. Did it produce the desired effect? Yes, yes, it did. Some of the greatest militaries, some of the greatest warriors, the greatest leaders in history come from these people. So if we're wondering why we don't produce these kinds of leaders anymore, these kinds of warriors, there's your answer. So at age 12 then, Spartan boys were stripped of their clothing, turned out into the elements, and forced to scavenge their own survival. In addition to these trials of hardship, Spartan adolescents were ritually flogged to teach endurance and pain resistance. After beginning their official military training at age 20, Spartan warriors learned to wield the dory spear and shield and backup swords. Because of their intense discipline and military training, Spartans were renowned as tough warriors with one of the most sophisticated armies in the ancient world. And so in conclusion, the warrior ethos permeated every aspect of a warrior's life far beyond the battlefield. 
Spartans, samurai, and Sioux fully embraced the virtues of selflessness, loyalty, discipline, honor, integrity, courage, and duty. Warriors from these cultures were elite, trained from an early age in the most advanced military techniques available. They held themselves to demanding standards of both physical and ethical excellence, more than willing to sacrifice their own lives for the honor of protecting the people. When the 300 Spartans were told that the Persian arrows would be so many as to block out the sun, Spartan leader Dionysius replied, Good news, for if the Medes hide the sun, then we shall fight them in the shade. As demonstrated by Leonidas's 300 Spartan warriors, warrior ethos demanded that they resolutely face death and never lose the will to victory. Even 2,500 years later, he and his men serve as a heroic example of courageous resistance against impossible odds. If you travel to Thermopylae today, you will see the spirit of warrior ethos inscribed on the Leonidas monument in two simple words, Molon Labe, come and take them. So, I see this floating around online on social media. When it comes to gun control and gun rights, people will post, Molon Labe, come and take my guns. I get it. I get it. You might want to review what happened in Waco or Ruby Ridge before you start making such statements, but I get it. Second of all, he's not just talking about his sword and his shield. He's talking about his ethics. You can have your guns taken from you by force because, well, the government doesn't care about you or your rights. That's obvious. But they can't take your ethics from you. They cannot strip virtue from you. It's the same with the Stoics. Epictetus said this, right? You can take everything from me, but you can't strip my thoughts from me. So yes, they can take our guns. They can take our homes. They can take our families away from us. And whoever they is, the government, society, a thief in the night, a murderer, whatever it might be, the tax man, but they can never take your virtue away from you unless you have none. If you have no ethos, if you have no code of conduct, if you have no standard, then there's nothing to take from you and you've lost everything already. You just don't know it. When Lincoln freed the slaves, he just freed the slaves institutionally on a very small scale, in a very narrow way, a very narrow institutional definition of slavery. What he did is open up the entire society of the United States to chattel slavery. And then we invented smartphones so that they can track our every movement and keep us slaves perpetually, which is the state that we are in today. And the most disruptive personalities then on social media and in physical reality are those with a set of standards, with an ethic. And I think the most destabilizing personalities within any group then are those who subscribe to a warrior ethos because they hold themselves to a standard of selflessness, loyalty, discipline, honor, integrity, courage, and duty. And they seek daily to grow this, 
to learn more about these virtues, to embody these virtues to a greater extent, to manifest these virtues in their every decision. And they strive for that every single day. And therefore, they are a mirror held up to those with no standard, with no ethics. And it is to their shame that their weakness is exposed and their fear is exposed. So of course they're going to lash out. Of course they're going to try to cancel us. Of course they're going to label us extremist, right-wing, whatever, you name it. Toxic masculinity, white privilege, on and on the list goes. These are categories. These are names that they use to put us in a box and dismiss us. And so long as we hold ourselves to the standard that we have set for ourselves, that these warriors have set for us in the past, they're just names. That's all they are. They're just names. They do nothing. They affect nothing. They accomplish nothing. And recognize the only reason you're being called these things is because you're a mirror that shows them their weakness, their cowardice, their fear. And they despise you for that because it reminds them of what they already know in their heart is true. That's why they do what they do and say what they say. Everything, their whole life is just theater. It's just performance art. They're LARPing, being people. But as long as we hold to selflessness and loyalty and discipline and honor, integrity, courage and duty, and we study what this means, and we learn from these people, from our spiritual fathers and mothers, who embodied these virtues and pass this down to us in the present tense. Stay loyal to them. Learn what it means to be selfless. Study. Then practice it in life until it just simply becomes the way you live. Then you become a mentor. Then you become an example. Not by running around saying, hey, I'm a mentor. You want to pay me? I'm an example. Follow my example. No. You simply become an example and mentor by the fact that you're a light in the darkness and people will be drawn to you. You don't have to try. They'll be drawn to you. And if people aren't, keep working on yourself. It's not your call yet. It's not your vocation yet. You still have work to do. It's based on your reputation and your behavior. And people will be drawn to you as you develop, as you grow, and as you become better and embracing and embodying these virtues. So you have to study these virtues in order to learn what they are and learn how they are applicable in real life. Then you apply them in life, you embody them, and through that, through behaving in this way and conducting yourself in this way, according to this ethic, this code of conduct, people will be drawn to you. Not in droves, not by the thousands or millions or even hundreds, but groups, the remnant, as we say. Small groups will be drawn to you, those who want better for themselves, who recognize they're in a hole and they can't figure out how to work their way out of it. They're wandering around blind in the dark and they don't know how to find the light. You are that light to them. So shine. Let it shine. Don't worry about people judging you. Don't worry about if you fall down. Don't worry about if you're not doing it well. You're doing it. And as long as you're doing it, you're on the right path. And you will get better through practice. You will get comfortable being uncomfortable doing this difficult thing in a society with such low standards and almost no ethic that you only have one direction to go and that's up. So keep going. Stay on the path. Listen to the podcast. Read the books. Listen to the lectures. 
but embody these things. Don't just listen. Don't just be a, a, an observer. Don't be passive. Learn from this and then think, how do I apply this to my life? How do I act out on these teachings? How do I apply these things to my life and do it in such a way that I can better myself? And maybe that is a weekend retreat. Maybe that is a week-long seminar where you learn grappling and striking and philosophy and theology, whatever it may be. You surround yourself, you seek out people that have the tools that you need to build yourself up into a better version of yourself today. So that's all I got for today, folks. Went on for quite a long time today, but I had a lot to get out. And I, again, I just, I'm so grateful for all of you and how you encourage me to keep going with this and, and the suggestions you make, the questions you ask. Thanks for giving me the fist bump and the shake. Thank you for the financial support. I truly appreciate it. And like I said, I'm not doing this to hurt people and I'm not doing this to start a movement or anything like that. I'm just doing this because I'm a guy that just doesn't have too many people to talk to about this stuff. And so in a way, I'm just kind of screaming into the abyss. <laughs> and if you're hearing this and you feel like me, you're not alone. If you want to talk, I'm available. Just contact me through Instagram, DM me. We'll try and set up a time to talk. If you want to talk on a podcast, if you have a podcast and you want me to come on, I'd be happy to come on your podcast and have the conversation with you, whatever the format. But yeah, we got to support each other, people. We got to stick together. We got to let each other know that we're out there because it can be depressing and it can be tough sometimes and it can be crushing the way that it seems like everybody is constantly going the other direction than the way we're going. And most people are, let's be honest. Because that's the downhill path. That's the path of least resistance. That's the death drive, as Ernest Becker calls it. But we've made peace with death. That's why we're here. So we're moving into life and greater life and life in abundance. And so I hope today that that's what you enjoy is life in abundance. And if you're not, I hope you're working toward it. And I encourage you, I support you, and I applaud you, and I appreciate you. And I'll talk to you again real soon, Space Monkeys. Peace.